In the early 1930s, he apparently hoped that the successes by the German Nazi party would stimulate interest in the restoration of the monarchy, because I think he's delusional and didn't have any idea what the German Nazi party was up to. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, they'll give me power. They love sharing power, the Nazis. My God. Yeah. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of History's Greatest Idiots, the podcast in which we take you back on a journey through the annals of history and show you the worst mistakes ever made by humans so that you can earn lessons from them and never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We love making mistakes. They're kind of fun. And they teach us a lot. So nothing wrong with that. Joining me as ever is my amazing, wonderful co-host, Derek. Derek, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic again, as always. Great. Excellent. Um, I'm just I'm just realised that we haven't done our usual intro thing, but it's fine. I'll 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 fix I'll fix it up in post. Don't worry. Uh, I've already started the video, so I'm not going to stop. Eh, it's, it's reality internet podcast yeah. video. Yeah, I've got the Sunday real, brain man. thing going on. <laughs> just nothing's making sense. So how are things over in uh, in Arizona right now? How are things going at your end? Pretty good, man. Uh, yeah, just. I've been on vacation, hanging out, nice. uh, playing radio every now and again. Oh, um, morning radio in Tucson with my buddy Beef. It's super nice. fun. Uh, I'm just happy to, I don't know, be doing stuff, I guess. Yeah. It's not work, real work. I get that. <laughs> like, doing something that kind of you have a passion for or, like, gets you excited. Like, I, I love doing stuff like that. I Love doing voiceover work and streaming and all the other things I do that kind of keep my creative juices flowing while still challenging you. What are mornings like in Tucson? I have to ask because I've never been to Arizona and know of Tucson, but what's it like kind of morning radio time? Um, it, You know, he's doing it different because he's bringing back like personality to music nice. radio, which they've yeah. like kind of gone away from in the States. They They think that... They can program the music in and get the ratings that way. When that in reality, work. Spotify and YouTube Music and yeah, a hundred other the places exist. <laughs> radio and Spotify is literally the person putting the music out, so you do need to have a connection there. Yeah, right? I'm glad that he's doing that. It's a good decision. Uh, he's got you can, a, you can... a cast of characters too, so it's like there's eleven <laughs> different people that rotate through wow. each day throughout the week, and it's That's it's amazing. nuts. That's really cool. It's funny because I remember back in my radio days a long time ago. God, I'm so old. Um, I, I went to a, a speech um, done. Oh, God. Who was it that did it? It was, um, it was a very famous American voiceover artist, and he'd come over to be one of the guest speakers at this conference. And he's, and this is going to show my age. Um, the only difference between you and an iPod uh, it, it, your show and an iPod is your personality. Make it count. Even if you only get two minutes of talk time an hour, make those two minutes count. And I was only allowed two minutes of talk time an hour, but I stole three more. So like, <laughs> it was like, I'm not going to play this Smith song. I'm going to talk a little bit more. So. Right. And it works. You know, the ratings always tend to go up when you have a connection with your audience and you interact with them. So, And that's what we hope to do on this show. So if you are listening, we are on Instagram and Twitter. I think on Twitter it's at History's Greatest Idiots. And 
uh, or is it Greatest Idiots? It's at Greatest Idiots on Twitter. Yes. And on Instagram, it's at History's Greatest Idiots. So if you want to interact with us there, please do. We've already had uh, another uh, podcast called History Obscura Podcast. Um, sent us last time um, the person I researched, Tycho Brahe, who is a fascinating scientist, genius-level intellect, discovered incredible things, but refused to acknowledge that the Earth revolved around the sun and also died because he held in his piss too long. Yeah. So that's, yeah, fascinating idiot. (laughs) That is not the way you want to go. That is not, no. I think peaceful, you don't want to die like an idiot. No. I mean, you can live your life as an idiot, but if you go out like either heroically or normally, that's kind of, you know, like, oh, passed away peacefully in their sleep. It's like, oh, okay, nice. Or passed away fighting, invading hordes from such and such. You know, that like that has a ring to it. That's the whole thing. But if you die because you held your piss in, because you didn't know what the etiquette was for leaving a table at a banquet, then you're a fucking idiot. For sure. So, absolutely. So on that subject, Derek, who is your chosen idiot for episode 14 this week? Who have you got for us? I have got a big one this time. Awesome. I, I wanted to go a ways back, and I've been eyeing this man's mustache um, <laughs> with envy for <laughs> for quite some time. Uh, the awesome. guy I, I have today was born in Berlin in January of 1859. Okay. Usually I'll, I'll tease it along and make you mm-hmm. keep guessing at who it is. This time I'm not going to do it because it's super obvious, but he was born in 1859 at the Crown Prince's Palace to Victoria, the Princess uh, Royal, the eldest daughter of Britain's Queen Victoria, and mm-hmm. Prince Frederick William, uh, future King Frederick Third of Prussia. That's he, right, yes. He, he ended up being the last emperor and king of Prussia, uh, reigning from June 15th, 1888 until his abdication on November 9th, 1918. The one and only Kaiser Wilhelm II. Oof, this dude. <laughs> oh, um, it's, it's odd. I didn't know this, but he suffered a traumatic breech birth um, oh. resulting in Herb's palsy, which left Ooh. him with a, a withered left arm that was about six inches Shorter than his right? I do remember hearing about the arm. I didn't know it was from a breech birth. That's that's interesting. It was a, a rough way to come in. Um, yeah. But Probably gave he, him a complex early on as well, I'd imagine. There's a lot of historians that think that uh, the the shorter right arm and having to hide it and conceal mm. it and and being in a position of uh, leadership or like royalty... You, yeah. you don't want that sort of stuff to get out. So it did have a, a bit of a, an effect, or they have suggested that it had a, an effect on his emotional development and mm. personality and psyche over time. Yeah. Um, in 1863, an example of the developmental issues, uh, he went to England to be present at the wedding of his uncle, King Edward the Seventh. Okay, sure. That sounds right. Yeah, because I think Bertie was the eighth. Yep. Nope. Then that's the one, Bertie. (laughs) He went to go uh, to that between the King Edward and Princess Alexander of Denmark. Alexandra? Yes, yes. So that would have been Bertie's dad. Um, Okay, so. Yeah. I am, for a person that does a history podcast, 
shockingly <laughs> bad. <laughs> and th- there's and a lot of kings and queens. Two. Don't be upset about mixing them up. It's They're just one homogenized, incestuous lump, as far as I'm concerned. So, so many. I had no idea that they were so tightly linked between like, oh, yeah. Germany and Prussia and, and, and uh, Great Britain. England, yeah. It's basically should all just be one country, I suppose, with a bunch of different Moral, states. It would make sense, wouldn't it? <laughs> like a, a European Union. A union of sorts. <laughs> anyway, so he's at this wedding, uh, four years old. And hmm. his uncle was put in charge of him, try to keep him in in check. And okay. he was dressed in a Highland costume for the ceremony, complete with a small toy dirk. Okay. And he he was raising all kinds of hell. And right. his uncle, yeah. Prince Alfred, told him, hey, <laughs> knock it the hell off. Calm down. Slap. So he drew his dirk and threatened his life. And Four-year-old. That's when Yep, and that's when Prince Alfred, uh, Alfred subdued him with force, and Wilhelm <laughs> bit him on the leg. Like a little <laughs> shit. <laughs> little shit. Oh my god, problem child from the start. Yeah, that's... When you get in that from a four-year-old... <laughs> yeah, threatening your issues. life. Woo! Yeah, yeah, that's pretty bad. Holy Luckily, shit. His, his grandmother didn't know about that, and he remained mm. her favorite grandchild. Okay. Um, his great uncle was the king of Prussia, Frederick William the uh, Fourth, who mm-hmm. reigned from 1840. Um, I didn't stop working here. Um, <laughs> he reigned from 1840 and was left permanently incapacitated after a series of strokes. So his Ooh. younger brother Wilhelm the First acted as his regent. Uh, later becoming king when his brother died in 1861, which Oof. set up the path for Wilhelm II to hmm. come on in. When yeah. when his uncle Kaiser Wilhelm I died in Berlin on March 9th, 1888, hmm. uh, Prince Wilhelm's father took the throne as Frederick III. Right, uh, yeah. At, at that time, he's already suffering from uh, incurable throat cancer and spent Oof. all of 99 days... Um, reigning while Jeez. fighting the disease. That's terrible. God, this yeah. this lineage has had quite the ride. Oh, yeah. You know, you think that over in the UK, we've had the Queen on the throne for what feels like 150 fucking years, but this lot have gone through kings like they were managers of a sports franchise, for <laughs> Christ's sake. I kind of... It feels like the more and more that I read and learn... It wasn't uncommon for really short mm. reigns, apparently. Um, Particularly so, around this time. There's a lot of horrible diseases going on. Well, and a lot of horrible people. Yeah. <laughs> so, There's that. Huh? Well, There's that, maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe this guy, too. Oh, yeah. So, in uh, 1888, Frederick kicked the bucket and boom, uh, Wilhelm II becomes German emperor and king of Prussia. Uh, he he had a turbulent reign that culminated in Germany's guarantee of military support to Austria-Hungary during the crisis of, yeah. in July of uh, 1914, mm-hmm. which was one of the direct underlying causes of World War One. So, yeah, he, yeah, there, there were a few things going. World War One is a much more complicated 
sequence of events than World War II. World War II is reasonably clear-cut. I mean, yes, you can argue about when it started. Did it start when Japan invaded China and all these different things? But with World War I, there's a whole big, long snowballing of history. You can go back hundreds of years, particularly with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the irony, of course, is that had Franz Ferdinand not been assassinated by the anarchists, he was probably one of the few people that could have sorted out the issues in the Balkans because he was um, he was a, a central figure. He was very unpartisan. So he was quite a moderator and a decent person. But unfortunately, he was shot and it just all snowballed from there. That was the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. With right. World War I. Yeah, the whole World War One beginning was a total shit show all the way oh, around. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Making any sort of sense of it is I'm like, I don't know who started as the bad guy. I know yeah. the black hand sounds pretty badass, though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so to get a better picture of Kaiser Wilhelm, you have to understand that he was an uh, incredibly complicated individual, mm. uh, just That's like fair. the war. Yes. His parents, uh, Emperor Frederick III and Empress Victoria, were politically liberal, and mm. re- and he, he rejected their politics, preferring <laughs> his grandfather's reactionary views. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother was... Queen, Queen Victoria's eldest daughter, and right. he prided himself on being Queen Victoria's favorite grandson. Yeah. <clears throat> As I understand it, uh, they were really close, and she actually died in his arms. Wow, that's that's amazing. So, his attitude towards the UK mm. um, was influenced by that relationship, but it sure. oscillated between sentimental friendship and jealous mm. hostility. Yeah, he did, he did have a jealous streak, the Kaiser, and it's, yeah, a little bit, um, it, you know, like you say, he was a very complex character. I do feel an element of sympathy for him because of some of the aspects of his life kind of growing up and the pressures and stuff like that. However, his re- reaction to them is and the uh, it's typical of someone who has had a difficult upbringing to embrace radical political beliefs that yes. are and when you have that power and you embrace those beliefs that's a recipe for catastrophe as we find out you know tens of well, millions of people died and there was kind of a uh, a fragile weird balance with the german uh, government at the time yeah and he kind of, the Kaiser, had a convoluted emotional situation uh, because he had an unrealistic appreciation for the position that he actually held. Mm. Uh, because of the complex hybrid system, there was no, like, one ruler. Mm. But Kaiser Wilhelm believed that he ruled alone by divine right. Oh, and, God, there uh, you go. that kind of was a problem. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he actually once said, I am the sole master of German policy and my country must follow where I go, which didn't really <laughs> correspond to reality. And yeah. it kind of got him into conflict with one of the leaders of the German government, like the Iron Chancellor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of, as a, uh, an emperor, he kind of came about 500 years too late. Like if he'd been yeah. wielding that kind of thing you know, in the 1400s or whatever, then that would have been fine. It's like, yes, my will is the only one that matters. I am divinely appointed. Like That shit had been going on for hundreds of years at that point, and people were like, yeah, he probably is divinely appointed. Everybody else says they have been, so why right. don't we just believe him? But when you've got 
people in power in a a democratic society, which Germany was, it was transitioning. It's interesting in terms of like the the actual process of German um, politics and life went from like serfs and um, feudalism to um, democracy very quickly. Like there was no transition period. It was just like one to the other. Whereas most countries would have had civil wars and would have had maybe a republic or maybe like parliamentary democracy first. They just went boom, serfs, boom, you're all free, but you're still working for us. So it's like, it's weird. (laughs) It's kind of jarring. And you kind of figure when you're used to being ruled, Hmm. when your rulers are like, hey, what do you think? (laughs) I <laughs> uh, think you should do your job. <laughs> yeah. You're you're divinely appointed. Why are you asking me? Right? So <laughs> he he got into it a little bit with the Iron Chancellor, though, believing mm. that he was divinely appointed and everybody else saying, well, that's not how it works anymore. We're changing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, he w- initially was a, a real big admirer of Otto von Bismarck, mm. uh, but his uh, impatience, the Kaiser, Mr. Wilhelm, was super impatient, and yeah. it brought him into conflict with the Iron Chancellor a lot because he opposed Bismarck's careful foreign policy and yeah. prefer- preferred the vigorous, rapid expansion to protect Germany's place in the sun. Yeah. And decide, you know, we wanted a big navy, wanted to challenge mm. uh, Britain on the, the naval That's power right. yeah. so they could keep their place in the sun. Um, <laughs> It's funny, you know, because he was going up against the Iron Chancellor. For people who don't know, Otto von Bismarck was possibly the greatest politician, certainly one of the most successful politicians in German history. Like He was a genius in the fields of foreign affairs, in rebuilding countries, in managing political outcomes and stuff. He was brilliant, and for the the emperor to get involved in that, it's like, leave the dude to do his job. He's very good. So. It, I kind of wonder what would happen if some of the really good leaders and really good yeah. politicians hadn't like ate themselves to death or been run out by crazy bastards. Or assassinated uh, by the, the CIA from a grassy knoll. Right. You know. What would the world look like today? But God knows. Anyway, Bismarck yeah. uh, resigned at Wilhelm's insistence in 1890 at the age of 75. Jesus. And... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, and then Kaiser went on his way doing his thing, which wasn't mm. all bad. Uh, no, he, no, it's got to be said. He enthusiastically promoted the arts and sciences as well as public education and social welfare. So yeah. there's those good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually sponsored the Kaiser Wilhelm Society for the Promotion of Scientific Research, That's which was funded good. by wealthy private donors and state, which comprised a number of research institutes, both in pure and applied sciences. Awesome. That said, he had an unlimited, a limited attention span, which I think is horrible <laughs> for science and art, but yeah. he preferred to talk rather than listen, mm-hmm. and as a result was a really shitty judge of character for men and had a, a well, <laughs> well, men and women, I suppose. Men mm. being the Yeah, particularly human. in German society. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So he had a, a super difficult time understanding the views of others because he never shut the hell up to listen to him talk. He was too busy thinking of what he was going to say. Mm. And you combine that with his impatient, impatientness and subjective reactions, yeah, it, it kind of got bad, and he was super impulsive. Mm. So he was personally 
completely ill-equipped to guide Germany in foreign policy and running off of Otto von Bismarck was really stupid. Yeah, um, it really was a bad decision. <laughs> some of his best friends, uh, Count von Bülow and Prince von Eulenburg. Uh, Nice. Uh, that was quoted, great. Well done. <laughs> they, they were quoted as saying, it's a misfortune that our beloved and highly gifted Kaiser so readily, readily exaggerates his, and his temperament and... Excuse me. Let me try this again. It's okay. Uh, it is a misfortune that our beloved, highly gifted Kaiser so readily exaggerates and his temperament and occasionally his imagination take over. So mm. That's um, a very good... as. Uh, if you were to sum up the Kaiser without using swear words, that's a pretty good assessment of the <laughs> yeah. man. He's very good. Thinks too much of himself. Pretty much. And yeah. makes stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> so as Bulo and uh Eulenberg were among the most loyal of the Kaiser's entourage, their remarks are kind of super telling, like you said. Yeah. Um they also said he was too fond of words like smash, destroy, annihilate. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking Hulk over here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he was too fond of those words for his, his own country's good. Um, British public opinion of him was quite favorable. Uh, yeah, it was, up surprisingly. Up until the late 1890s. Um, mm. Right about that time, that's when he fo forced uh, Otto von Bismarck out. So yeah. I guess maybe they weren't super fond of him. They just liked the way that he let the dude that knew what he was doing do what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. I think um, it's funny because around about the turn of the century, nationalism was starting to creep in. And at the time, people were like, ooh, we remember Napoleon. Nationalism isn't good. Nationalism right. isn't good at all. Then 40 years later, they're like, ooh, let's have some of that nationalism. Ooh, let's fight over it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Well Another time when he was actually good, and I don't believe it was too much. It was it was away from the nationalism. It was in the 1900s yeah. when he supported the marriage of the Archduke Ferdinand to yeah. the Austria uh, of Austria to the the Countess Sophie Kochotek. Uh, uh, Something like that, yeah. It's a weird <laughs> name. <laughs> but uh, before too long, uh, blows to his public opinions and trust came wandering in when the Eulenburg scandal hit mm. his friend and close member of his entourage was kind of outed by a member of the elite society and journalist Maximilian Harden who published a, a bunch of revelations of homosexual activity yep. involving the ministers courtiers army officers and one prince Philip zu Eulenberg, and that mm -hmm. resulted in a ton of uh, scandals, trials, and, and even suicides. Yep, that was because uh, it was still illegal in Germany right the way through until I think the 60s, 1960s, which it also was in the UK. Um, really? You no, know, Oscar Wilde was made to do hard labor for being gay. Holy um, moly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They found out, like, oh, you're gay? The person who's been so flamboyant and dandy for 20 years of his career? Really? It's like the whole Freddie Mercury thing, or um, I guess the only one that was surprising was Rock Hudson because he was so kind of. <laughs> but when people Masculine were surprised that Liberace Andy. was gay, you oh. know. Yeah. Like, oh, really? Liberace? Yes, of course, Liberace, for fuck's sake. 
What do you mean RuPaul dresses like a woman? (laughs) (laughs) He's totally straight. Uh, Uh, Well, I just, I had no idea how rough uh, it Mm. was. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm learning more and more. But uh, not too long after that stuff started going down, my stomach's growling all over the place. I think it's time to eat. Uh, (laughs) The assassination of Archduke Franz Mm. Ferdinand, uh, who was a friend of the Kaiser, happened shortly after the scandals and trials and all of that. Mm. And he was the Kaiser was profoundly shocked by the assassination and offered to support Austria-Hungary in crushing the Black Hand, which was... Uh, uh, that secret organization of, I believe, the Serbs, Serbian. Yes, the the, yeah. the kind of the underground, basically. Coolest secret society name oh, yeah. of all time. Yeah, along with the Hellfire Club, which was oh. an actual real thing in the UK. Um, I can't remember where it was, but um, some. Oh, what's his name? Uh, American uh, polit- uh, kind of politician and inventor and Tom founding Sinan? father. Sorry? Oh, Ben Franklin. Franklin was a member of the Hellfire Club, and it was basically an underground orgy society. So, nice. uh, yeah. <laughs> Hell of a name as well. But, uh, yeah, Franklin was a member because, you know, he liked to pork. What can we say? <laughs> I don't know if, if the Black Hand was doing too much porking. but they... No, they were too busy killing. The Hellfire yeah. Club were all about the shagging. So, <laughs> See, basically. that's the club you need to get into. Yeah, you need to be in the shagging Avoid the club, murdering, not the, the killing club. Secret underground sex in spa towns—that's that's more fun than assassinating emperors, you know? Right, because that turns to things like Wilhelm sanctioning the use of force by Austria against the perceived source of the movement in mm. Serbia. Yeah. Uh, unknown to the emperor at the time, the Austro-Hungarian ministers and generals had already convinced Franz Joseph I of Austria to sign a declaration of war against Serbia. That's right. And as a direct result, Russia started to mobilize and attack Austria in defense of Serbia, and here comes war. Yeah, and then everyone <laughs> so, piles in. Yeah, during the First World War, uh, he became a central target of the British anti-German propaganda oh, yeah. and the personification Boy, of hated enemy. Mm. Yeah. He's a good, good, good target. During the yeah, war, oh, yeah. he was also regarded as the Shadow Kaiser because mm. uh, even though he was the supreme warlord whose name the generals acted in, most of the generals totally disregarded everything that he was saying and kind of just yeah. did whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, because so, they knew what they, they were professional soldiers. He's just a hothead, basically. With with, with one short arm and yeah. uh, and a tendency to exaggerate. Exactly. So <laughs> so his war in the wartime was one of ever decreasing power, and mm. he increasingly handled award ceremonies and honor honorific duties. Yeah, the high command continued with their strategy, even though uh, it was clear that the Schilfen plan had failed. Mm. But by 1916, oh, I scrolled too far. Uh, <laughs> the emperor. Empire had effectively become a military dictatorship yes. under the control of Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg. Yes, the von Hindenburg yes. name is very famous throughout history. So, yeah, big arsehole, that guy. Yeah, uh, him and his friend uh, Eric Ludendorff were the ones mm. running things during yeah. the war. The Kaiser's support collapsed completely uh, between October and November of 1918 in the army and in the civilian government, and in the German public opinion, 
and then President Woodrow Wilson yeah. um, made it clear that the Kaiser could no longer be party to peace negotiations uh, when, when the war was ending. Yeah. And Wilhelm was at the Imperial Army headquarters in Spa, Belgium, when the uprisings in Berlin, Berlin and other cities took him by surprise in late 1918. Uh, mutiny among the ranks of his beloved uh, Kaiserschleich uh, Kaiser like Marines and Imperial Navy totally blew his mind after yeah. the outbreak of the German Revolution. Yes. Uh, and he kind of sat there trying to figure out, oh, shit, should I abdicate or not? Should I get mm -hmm. out of here? Should I, I cut weight and, and take off? Yeah. And uh, the Chancellor, Prince Max uh, Baden, made that pretty easy for him when he yeah. said, oh, yeah, he abdicated both of his titles. He's out. <laughs> So Wilhelm crossed the border by train and yeah. went into ex exile in Netherlands. Which was actually a very smart thing to do, to be quite honest, because there was no way he was he would have been killed. Had he oh, he back wanted to, to try and point. keep a crown, and that's totally not something to risk your life over. It's no, just, it I just really want isn't. One of my titles. <laughs> <laughs> just go and chill out in in fucking Amsterdam, you idiot! Jesus. Yeah, well, if, place there's worse it. places to be exiled. I tell you, uh, there are. Yeah, if you know Amsterdam, that's a nice place to be exiled. <laughs> um, upon the conclusion of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, Article 227 expressly provided for the prosecution of Wilhelm yep. for, quote, uh, a supreme offense against the international morality and the sanctity of treaties. Insane, so, insane. Basically, also, the, the Versailles thing, what a fucking clusterfuck. Without the uh, Treaty of Versailles... If it, if they've got that right, there's no World War Two, right? Basically, oh, that whole thing was a shit show. Yeah. Also, most of, most of what they were doing back then was just a giant just problem. Idiots like, everywhere. <laughs> just not thinking through no. uh, what comes of these actions. They're exactly. Thinking, well, this is mine. This is mine. That's yours. We can Empire. have some of this. Kill that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Empire building always works out great, doesn't it? Nothing yeah. ever goes wrong. Never. Never. <laughs> anyway, the Dutch government didn't uh, extradite him. They refused mm. to do so, despite the Allies telling him, yeah, uh, give him to us, give him to us. King George, uh, he once looked at his cousin, or wait, he wrote that he looked on his cousin as the greatest criminal in history, but opposed the uh, proposal to hang the Kaiser. Jesus. So he's my cousin. He's a dick. We're not going to kill him. No. He's the greatest <laughs> criminal in history. But don't kill him. You know, yeah. kill other criminals that have nicked fruit from market stalls and stuff. You know, they're the ones well, that really deserve it, not this guy who's sanctioned the death of millions of people. I so. guess it's it's always been a thing. If you're born into the right family, yeah. uh, crime's kind of subjective. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... It was reported that, uh, oh, wait, I'm, see, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on January 1st, 1920, uh, it was stated in official circles in London that Great Britain would welcome the refusal by Holland to deliver the former Kaiser for trial, mm. and it was hinted that uh, this had been conveyed to the Dutch government through diplomatic channels. Chill. 
1922, Wilhelm published the first volume of his memoirs, which were a slim volume, and insisted yeah. that he wasn't guilty of the Great War or initiating the Great War, and defended his conduct throughout his reign, especially in matters of foreign policy. Dumbass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't do it. I was awesome. It wasn't me. You don't know. I mean, you don't I, know. I, I was awesome. <laughs> I, I can kind of understand, like he, he to a certain extent, he is right. Like he wasn't ultimately responsible for the outbreak of the war. That is true. But to then go on and say, also, I was fucking amazing. You should all be glad. <laughs> it's like no, 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 no. You, you had a point. Stop there. You know, close. Yeah. <laughs> In the early 1930s, he apparently hoped that the successes by the German Nazi Party would stimulate interest in the restoration of the monarchy, uh, and that his eldest grandson would get to become the fourth Kaiser, because mm -hmm. I think he's delusional and didn't have any idea what the he German did not Nazi know Party the was up <laughs> Yeah. They're, oh, they'll give me power. They love sharing power, the Nazis. My God. Yeah. Well, his second wife, her, uh, Hermione, actively petitioned the Nazi government on her husband's behalf, yeah. but Adolf Hitler himself was a veteran of World War I, mm. and uh, like other leading Nazis, felt nothing but contempt for the man they blamed for Germany's greatest defeat, Exactly, and his wife's petitions were ignored, mm -hmm. and... That just kind of further illustrates the delusional and unrealistic ideas yeah. that basically defined the life and leadership of Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was the last German emperor, king of Prussia, and one of history's greatest idiots. What do you think? I absolutely agree with you. It's it's interesting because this is another this is another instance of a very famous leader from history who's really only known for being... I mean, he did, like you say, he did stuff with the arts, with sciences, and you know, the movements in that direction. But he's really only known for unrealized potential. You know, we look at someone yes. like King John or, um, you know, Bertie's brother who abdicated the throne, who we've covered before Edward. on this show, David. You know, these are all people oh, yeah. who... Could have been good rulers, could have been good leaders, but they got in their own way and yeah. they let, you know, they, they got on the wrong track and they got on the wrong plane of thought. So it, a lot of it is is kind of sad because in terms of apportioning blame for the Kaiser's just horrific historic level fuck-ups... Some yeah. of it does have to go for to his upbringing, but then again, he did have a massively success. It, like he was born into privilege, so we can't go too much into. Oh, he he had a, a physical disability and he was bullied and blah. blah. It's like he lived in lavish luxury in Germany and right. Prussia, so you know it. What his lot was not as bad as the peasants that were you know working the fields in those parts of the world. It's a bit easier to survive with a disability when you're filthy rich. Yeah, exactly. When you have <laughs> multiple palaces to hide in, it's totally fine. Um, the Kaiser is a study in what happens when you do not have someone. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, you've probably heard of this, that Roman emperors, or not Roman emperors, Roman generals, would have um, 
they were essentially ancient Roman taxi drivers who, on their victory marches through Rome with all the spoils of war and all the people they'd captured and blah, 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 there'd be someone, I think they're called augers or something like that, not the, the ovens. They were people driving the carts who would whisper in their ear, you are just a man, you are just a man, to keep them humble. Because even though hey, they dominated those. the world, they were like, we have to stay ready because if we get deluded, then we're going to lose it all. And the Romans understood right. that f- for a while anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this guy is, I mean, to, be, to call yourself divinely appointed, it's not the fucking 12th century. You can't pull that shit in a modern world. Yeah, so, after you after you get through the like the industrial revolution yeah, and all that's that, that's kind of like nah. <laughs> we've we've already learned from Nietzsche that ship has sailed, you know. So you can't you can't pull that shit anymore. With I do have an interesting question for you though. Go on, go on. So instead of King George, we've hmm. got uh, Edward the Eighth, hmm. and we keep. Uh, the Kaiser in here, he doesn't muck up the world war and, and piss off the Russians. Oh, yeah. The two of them, related and friendly. Yes. I mean, the anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim and all of that stuff's pretty bad, but... Yeah, pretty bad. I, that, we that, might yeah. never have had a giant Holocaust and horrible second war. Very true. Very true. And actually, at the time, around about this time, I'm trying to think, it would have been when the Kaiser was still quite young, England had a Jewish prime minister... In Benjamin oh. Disraeli. So, um, I don't know, would he have been before the Kaiser's time? Because I know that during the First World War, it was a Welsh Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, who was running the country. But, um, yeah, there were there were two political giants. There was Gladstone and there was Disraeli, and they were kind of going up against each other. Disraeli was uh, a rampant womanizer and gambler and, and stuff like that, but he was a very popular figure. Um, so yeah, it, had that worked out differently, I actually think we probably would have had very cordial and very different relationships. It, it could even have come to a point where the European Union might have happened maybe three quarters a century before it actually did. You know, that would have been interesting. That would have been incredibly interesting, and then you would have had. You know, you're talking about the age of empires as well, the development of science and arts, and this could have been a very different part of the world. So, yes. Um, with that in mind, in terms of scoring, the Kaiser is he is a tragic idiot because he just needed someone to say, "Look, you aren't all that," even though his friends were doing it behind his back. So yeah. had he taken that on board and gone, oh, maybe I should be a bit more introspective, it might have been better. So I'm with the Kaiser, I'm going to go an 85, I think. That's fair. That's a B. I'll take yeah. it. We've got to go big <laughs> with the Kaiser because while there are mitigating factors in his favor, the fact that royals were – they were all fucking a bit mad, really. Yeah. So it's just his madness happened to tip over into the realm of extremism, nationalism, and, and war. So I think 85 is fair. Um, I do too. If he were someone like Hitler, who had no links to royalty and no real kind of point where you could say, well, the weird isolation in absolute luxury and no connection with the outside world, that's why he was mad. Hitler had none of that. You know, Hitler had his own set of circumstances, but that's why Hitler would always score much higher than the Kaiser. But yeah, I think 85... 
is fair for the Kaiser because he started a domino effect that went on until about 1989, really, when the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah. When the Soviet well, Union fell. So we're talking. And it was all basically just because he wasn't paying attention. Pretty to, much. Like foreign policy and what the hell was happening. I know. A hundred years <laughs> of European history from him going into power in 1888 to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 80, uh, 1989. All of that could have been very different had he been a slightly different person. But then again, we could say that about everything, you know. If, yeah. If the, if the Mongols hadn't invaded Russia, would the Russians be so kind of angry about outsiders? You know, it's it's a whole thing. <laughs> so you can say that about everyone. Uh, my guy is a little bit more low level in terms of historic okay. idiots. In fact, I, I doubt many people outside of Netflix viewers in the UK or people who knew about the case in Ireland at the time will have heard the name or know the person that is Ian Bailey. Let me tell okay, you the story of my idiot this week. Ian Bailey, the most suspicious man in history by his own doing. He made himself okay. the most suspicious person in human history. <laughs> um, okay, so Sophie Tos- Tuscan Duplantier, who was previously known as Bourniel, lived in Paris with her film producer husband, Daniel Tus- Tuscan De Plantier and a son from her first marriage, Pierre Louise Louis uh, Baudy Vigneault. That's a load of French words. This is going to be Lord man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She had visited Ireland several times as a teenager and bought a house in the uh, village of School. It's called S S C H U L L Shul School, something like that. It's pronounced it. Um, in the county of Cork, well, it's County Cork, in southwestern Ireland, which is very isolated. If you if you ever, it reminds me a bit of North Wales. If you go to these parts of Celtic nations, there aren't straight motorways to get to anything. You have to go down winding a roads if you're lucky to get to these places because the landscape is such that you can't really build a motorway. Like, it's not flat, it's not easy to dig into, it's volcanic, it's full of rocks, and it's undulating, and, you know, there wasn't enough dynamite in the world to make a motorway for this. (laughs) So, um, So West Cork, uh, sorry, County Cork in Southwest Ireland, is a very remote place, but it's also a place where a lot of the locals say people get blown into the area. So they will leave where they live from and they go to Southwest Ireland because it's like, it's got kind of this ethereal, magical thing. There's a lot of abandoned ancient castles there. There's a lot of really like thousands and thousands of years old, like Neolithic burial sites. And it's all very Skyrim. You know, it's very okay. kind of Elder Scrolls. Fantasy land. Yeah, kind of that sort of thing going on. And people are drawn to it, particularly artists, it seems. Um, journalists, artists, poets, writers, musicians, they all tend to go there because it's a wild landscape staring right out at the Atlantic, but it's also really romantic and very kind of um, uh, Withering Heights, kind of Heathcliff kind of thing, very passionate and all that. And she was drawn there as a result of visiting there a number of times. Uh, 1993, she bought the cottage as a holiday retreat. And it's very basic. Like, they had electricity. 
and they had running water, but there was no real heating. So uh, okay. it was a lot of like open fireplaces everywhere, and it's kind of like it was, it was like the kitchen and living space was one room, wasn't massive, but it was kind of big. And then they had an upstairs and a couple of rooms, and uh, I think there was an uh, there was a bathroom that was very basic in, and they probably had like yeah, an outside it's in the house. Thing. It's it's kind of romantic, you know, and yeah. in the southwest of Ireland with the prevailing Atlantic winds, you'd have had to keep that fire stocked big time yeah. to keep that place warm. So very romantic, but very kind of rustic, very isolated and very rural and very... Sounds um, like my kind of place. It's cool until you find out what happened there. Uh, Uh-oh. So um, she was a regular visitor with her son. Locals knew her, this is Sophie Toussaint de Plantier, by her maiden name. She didn't go by Toussaint de Plantier. She, she just, she thought it was, I think apparently the, ru- the rumor is she was just, it was too fancy and she wanted to get away because her husband was a big deal in France. Like he would go to all these premieres and we're talking like big Hollywood names and big films, big productions. He was part of them, and she was kind of under the microscope in Paris, a bit like living in L.A., you know, as a, right. as a big name. So she tried to avoid that. Southwest Island's very remote, so she just wanted to be kind of hidden away from that. Okay. Sorry. Um, she arrived alone um, in Ireland on the 20th of December, 1996, with plans to return to Paris for Christmas. So she just wanted, like, a long weekend there sort of thing. Um, Toussaint de Plantier was found by her neighbour at 10am in a laneway beside her house, dressed in nightwear and boots. Her long john bottoms were caught on the barbed wire fence. Bloodstains were present on a gate, as well as a nearby piece of slate and a concrete block. Lots of blood on the concrete block. Her body was left outdoors until the arrival of the state pathologist, John Harbison, 28 hours later. Wow, that's a hell of a response to <laughs> that. I mean, I told you West Island was Southwest Island was isolated, but that's fucking ridiculous. Um, he walked there. Yeah, he. This is worth noting as well. There's footage from this because the documentary is great. I, I highly recommend before we get too deep into this, people go if you can get onto Netflix UK. I don't know if you use a VPN or whatever. Um, there's a documentary on there called Sophie: A Murder in West Cork. It is fucking fascinating it is one of the it's three parts it's on netflix i think i said it is one of the most amazing documentaries i've seen since since what was it uh the tiger king dude okay yeah it's that level of like what the fuck is this um (laughs) totally shocking um so yeah um found her long johns um so when the state pathologist got there for 28 hours and the reason i brought that up there's footage from the local news at the time who filmed the comings and goings to the house they covered up the body with a sheet that's all they did to kind of preserve oh. the scene. They didn't put like one of these tents over to preserve That'll them. hide it. Didn't hide it. They, they just <laughs> chucked a sheet over it. Meanwhile, every fucking police officer, journalist, local idiot has walked through the scene. They've, they've kind of fucking smoked. Um, they've trampled around in the mud for 28 that hours. Won't make it diffi- that won't make it difficult to figure anything out at all. That's kind of fucked, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Um, The pathologist, when he got there, found lacerations and swelling of the brain, a fracture of the skull, and multiple blunt head injuries. This was a frenetic attack. This wasn't some calculated back-of-the-head execution. This wasn't a stabbing in, like, the lower rib cage or anything like that. This was a frantic, merciless attack 
that was completely just emotion. It was full of emotion oh, yeah. and anger and rage and just wild attack. Um, the facial injuries were so severe that her neighbor, who'd known her for years, couldn't formally identify her because there was Ooh. just nothing left of her face. Really, That's really bad. Guy. Now, here come That's... the Garda. The Garda are the Irish police. Um, it's okay. it's spelt G-A-R-D-A-I with a weird circumflex thing. Some people pronounce it Garda. Some people say Gardi, Garda. I'm going to say Garda just for the sake of ease because Irish... Um, the Irish language, it's not the easiest thing to pronounce even for a fellow Celt like me who speaks Welsh. Um, this is a very different set of rules. So the Garda have been criticised for mishandling evidence, which we've already talked about. They fucking marched through the scene like yeah. they were a bloody band or something. Uh, mishandling evidence and were alleged to have coerced and intimidated witnesses. We'll get to that in a minute. But okay. it's kind of weird. And I don't know which side of the fence I land on this. But anyway... The Agada Sayoshana Ombudsman. Uh, don't even ask me. You got way yeah. harder names than Internal me. Affairs, let's say that. <laughs> the Garda Internal Affairs Commission report concluded that while there was a lack of administration and management in the, the investigation, no shit, everyone's walking through the fucking scene, um, there was no evidence of high-level corruption. That doesn't say that there wasn't a high level of incompetence. <laughs> That's yeah. a very different thing. Um uh, yeah, so I've mentioned here, if you watch the uh, the documentary, it's it's basically they had no control over the scene. Fucking everything was right. happening there. Um, also, nobody wore any specialist gear, so they didn't put any like little booties on or any like kind of zip-ups so they didn't bleed DNA everywhere. They were just in their normal gear. So uh, cross-contamination. everything. <laughs> yeah. And it was also, this is worth pointing out, uh, mid to late 90s, this is still, especially in Ireland, very early days for DNA analysis and stuff like that. There wasn't much sophistication. So you basically needed a bucket of someone else's blood to get a DNA hit at this point. You needed all of their bodily fluids conveniently put in like little bags, a bit like in Seven, where the murderer's yeah. left like his fingerprints behind and he's left like a, a bucket of like spit or whatever. You know, it's, it's a bit weird. Anyway, um, now on to the main, and honestly, the only suspect in the crime, Ian Bailey, okay. was born in Manchester, England. He worked variously as a freelance journalist, sometimes published under the name Oyan Bailey, which is the Irish version of Ian Bailey, because, of course, you're going to slightly change your name to fit in with your new neighbours. What the fuck? Who does that? Just a little uh, bit. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, and also worked as a fish farmer and uh, had a market stall in Shul, the village, where he sold pizzas and poems, which... What? I bet that That's was a popular. That's a hell of a combination. Yeah, now nah, you can keep your fucking poem Wordsworth. I'll just have a margarita to go, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> he moved to Ireland in 1991 and lived with his partner Jules Thomas in Shul from 1992 onwards. So around about the same time 
that Sophie Toussaint de Plantier bought this cottage. Uh, Bailey okay. was known to the local Garda from previous incidents of domestic violence towards Jules, which had resulted in her hospitalization. It was brutal. In uh, 2001, he was convicted of assault in Skibberian uh, District Court. That's much further down the line. Um, the, the, when you look at this stuff, you're like, oh, domestic assault. It doesn't go into detail. The documentary does. He beat her mercilessly for years and her child. So, so he's established a pattern of being really passionate and punchy. Uh, pa- punchy, aggressive. Um, when you first see him in the documentary, you're like, he's a journalist. He's talking about like, oh, I was the first person who got the call and I went down there and you know the police were there. And you're like, oh, okay, here's the journalist talking. And then as the documentary goes on, the fingers start pointing at this dude and he gets <laughs> weirder and weirder and weirder as it happens. He is, well, um, anyway... So uh, I'm just going to give you a condensed timeline of what happened in this case. The timeline isn't 100% accurate of like what happens because it kind of points the finger of blame at the Garda. But anyway, December 23rd, 1996, uh, French film producer Sophie Toussaint de Plantier, 39, is found dead by neighbours outside her home near Tumour, Shul, uh, County Cork. Uh, January 11th, 1997, local shopkeeper Marie Farrell allegedly uses the name Fiona to make a confidential phone call to the Garda about a man she had seen at the Kyle Fadar Bridge, not far from the killing, at around 3am on December the 23rd, the night before. Um, at the time of the sighting, uh, she was with a man who was not her husband. Now, yeah, so the reason that a lot of people said she gave the name because she was with this guy, but apparently, like, in this part of the world, there was no bus, so it wasn't uncommon for people to give lifts to each other if they knew each other, but, like, 3 a.m.? Yeah. Also... Not good stuff. It's not good. Uh, (laughs) It's not mentioned here, but it's mentioned in the documentary. The person she saw was near naked and kind of howling at the fucking moon... It was a werewolf. Pretty done much. It. <laughs> a Mancunian werewolf, allegedly. Um, but yeah, it's like the behavior. She was like, he looked and sounded drunk, even from the okay. car. So pretty much out of his tree, uh, acting weird. She thought the person was Ian Bailey. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, January 31st, 1997, a Garda superintendent allegedly tells Ian Bailey that he's going to place him at the Kailfada Bridge in the early hours of the morning. That's according to Ian Bailey, the superintendent in the case. Basically, he denied it by saying, why the fuck would I tell a suspect what I was going to do in a murder case? I don't care how incompetent the Garda are. They're never going to say, I'm going to place you at the bridge at 3 a.m. Like, it's not fucking happening. Sorry, I don't believe that at all. Uh, apparently he did interview and he was like Ian Bailey's weird that part I can believe having heard what I've heard Uh, January slash February 1997 Marie Farrell is allegedly told that if she identifies the man on the bridge as Mr Bailey she won't have to give a statement this is also denied by the police I don't buy that for a second Um, February 10th, 1997, freelance journalist Ian Bailey is arrested on suspicion of murdering filmmaker Sophie Toussaint de Plantier. He is detained at Bandon Garda Station for 12 hours and is released without charge. 
January 27th, 1998, a year later, Ian Bailey, the prime suspect in the Dusan de Plantier case, is arrested for a second time. Again, he is released without charge. The criminal, mm. the, the people who do the charging in this, they were really reluctant to charge him, no matter what the Garda did. And with hindsight being the way it is, it, it's odd that they didn't want to charge him. I don't know why. They've never given a reason. They've always denied requests for a statement as to why they didn't charge this guy, but they just didn't. It's really odd because there's plenty of evidence, uh, as we'll see. He must have had some sort of pictures of them, oh, people yeah. that bring Compromising the charges naked somewhere. Yeah. You ordered a <laughs> Hawaiian pizza from my stall. I've got the pictures. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it was the poetry that yeah. they were concerned about. You, you wanted out. to listen to my poetry. Nobody else does. I've got the pictures proof. Yes, you've got to get me <laughs> off. Um, so, oh, and now we're jumping forward a bit here. April 2005, Marie Farrell allegedly phones Ian Bailey's solicitor, Frank Buttimer, and says, I want to tell the truth. She subsequently withdraws all statements she'd made to the Garda about the Duplantier investigation. Uh, February 2010, French authorities make a request for Ian Bailey's extradition on a European arrest warrant. Um, October 25th, 2011, Ian Bailey's partner Jules sends a letter to the office of the DPP. These are the people that are supposed to charge cases in Ireland, uh, which says for the last 15 years, we've been living in hell as the French authorities to continue to investigate the murder, because at this point, the Irish just can't charge him. So the French have taken right. over the investigation. Uh, November 2011, solicitor Frank Buttermer is furnished uh, inf with information from the DPP's office concerning pressure the Garda allegedly sought to put on the DPP and a state solicitor in the Bailey case. Basically, they wanted to charge him. That's not pressure. Right. That's like, why aren't you charging him? Uh, <laughs> May 2012, Supreme Court rules that Ian Bailey will not be extradited to France to stand trial. He's not an Irish citizen, but they don't want to deport him, which is weird. Um, yeah. Anyway, France has got a very weird justice system. They didn't mind that he wasn't going to be extradited, him, uh, extradited because they just held a trial without him. Um, <laughs> November, That's what you do, you know? Yeah, <laughs> we don't need you. We'll just trial. We'll give you a trial in absentia. November the 4th, 2014, the jury is sworn in for... This is great. Ian Bailey's civil action for damages in the High Court against the Guard Commission and the state for allegedly wrongful arrest. So the case has died down at this point. No one cares. It's been years. And he decides to sue people to clear his Oops. name. <sighs> not a good idea. It's really not. You're poking the bear. <laughs> As a result of this... Um, the trial goes on for fucking ages, and so much other stuff comes out that it basically looks makes Ian Bailey look guilty as sin, like stuff about his past, why he moved to Ireland, uh, the assaults, his it, him putting pressure on the woman to withdraw her statement to the Garda, all of this stuff comes out, his weird behaviour, which we'll get to in a minute. All of this stuff, right. none of it would have happened if he hadn't decided to try and sue the police. Um, as a result, a huge. He... If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. Sort of Just leave it alone, you <laughs> fucking idiot. 
Um, March 30th, 2015, Ian Bailey loses his civil case for damages against the state and the Garda Commission. It related to the evidence of Shul shopkeeper Marie Farrell, who said detectives convinced her to give statements placing the former journalist on a bridge near the crime scene, which she retracted many years later. As the jury retired to consider their decision, they had two questions to answer. The first was whether the Garda conspired to implicate Ian Bailey in the murder of Toussaint de Plantier. The second was whether there was a Garda conspiracy to obtain false statements from Shul shopkeeper Marie Farrell that Ian Bailey had intimidated her. After about two hours of deliberation, which is nothing at all, really, Hmm. um, the jury came back with the answers no on both counts. The Garda were fine. Um, The Garda, yeah. The Garda don't look great, but they don't look as bad as Ian Bailey. And also, there's an interesting development in this case. So, uh, Marie Farrell was put under cross-examination, um, on, and she was the only person that Ian Bailey had on his side. And she was going to come out okay. and say, no, no, he's, he's totally innocent. No, he's a great man, all this stuff. They put her on the stand, and they're like, look, what were you doing with another man in, in your car at 3 a.m. that wasn't your husband. And she was like, oh, I was giving him a lift, giving him a lift. And they were mm-hmm. like, okay, who was this man? And she was like, I'm not telling you. And they're like, no, that's not how this works. <laughs> you are going to tell us. She gets up and walks out of the course. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Kinda, that's badass. Kind of badass. <laughs> Unfortunately, this isn't the WWE and she's not Stone Cold Steve yeah. Austin. So um, the judge said, um, officers, can you go and grab that woman and bring her back in here, please? And remind her that if she does that again, she's going to be in contempt of court. She's going to have a 10,000 euro fine and she's going to be held in the cells overnight. So oh. you can't just walk out of court when you're on the stand. It's not how that works. Would be nice if you could, though. It would, yeah. Anyway, they brought her back in. She leaked that she eventually gave the name of the guy, and that was her credibility out the window because it was someone she was suspected of having an affair with. So, anyway, yeah. so the only person he had on his side was basically discredited. Yes. So, um, a psychiatrist report for the murder trial that was going on in France um, concluded um, that Ian Bailey. Uh, sorry, I, I just want to point out this is we're moving on to sources that aren't influenced by Ian Bailey now. We're moving on to the people in the area around the case okay. who, you know, weren't influenced by the Garda or Ian Bailey. They are just the community in which this happened and who knew them both and knew Ian Bailey and stuff. Um, a psychologist yeah. report prepared for the murder trial concluded that Ian Bailey had a personality constructed on narcissism, psycho rigidity, violence, impulsiveness, egocentricity, with an intolerance to frustration and a great need for recognition. Under the liberating effects of alcohol, he had the tendency to become violent. What does that sound like to you? Okay. Uh, murderer. Yeah. Although I'm not 100% sure he's not a werewolf still. Still could be a werewolf. A psychopath, (laughs) but he could be a psychopathic werewolf. Well, and I think that there's a certain degree of uh, psychopathy that uh, you have to have as as a a morphing being. Anyway, sorry. And as a freelance journalist, that world will make you a lunatic. Um, I know. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, so after his failed libel case, the judge stated that Mr. Bailey is a man who likes a certain amount of notoriety, that he likes to perhaps be in the limelight, that he likes to be uh, likes a bit of self publicity. When you watch the documentary, if you do, you definitely get that sense because like he spends ages of the documentary just walking around going, yeah, this is where I grow my beans. Beans are done really well. We've had a really good harvest this year. This is where I keep my potatoes. The potatoes are done really well. Actually, there was a moment when we were running and everyone's like, you're on a documentary about being a murder suspect. What is wrong with you? It's an odd thing to talk about at that time. He takes him on a tour of his fucking garden. He's so weird. I swear he to God. He thinks he's on cribs. <laughs> he does. Let me show you my money <laughs> this room. This isn't a murder documentary. This is my cribs. Come on in, y'all. <laughs> he totally is. It's an episode of Cribs, only with a serial killer, potentially, allegedly. This guy is very litigious, so I'm just going to say all of this, allegedly. 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 Except for the bit in France. <laughs> we'll get to that. Bailey denies knowing the victim. Some witnesses have con- contradicted this, and one witness, Martin Graham, has maintained that the Garda bribed him using cannabis to make a statement that Bailey previously knew Toussaint de Plantier. Another witness, Leo Bolger, had the mo- uh, said that... Um, uh, yeah... Another witness, Leo Bolger, had the most sophisticated cannabis farm ever seen in West Cork. Did he have robots or some shit? (laughs) It's growing weed. It's not that fucking hard. Robot pot farmers. That's what's up. Irish pot farmers. I wonder what that strains are like. Um, And after making a statement linking Bailey to Toussaint de Plantier, had his uh, sentence suspended when they found his pot farm. Uh, that being said, a load of other uh, people who lived in the area were like, yeah, they hung out. Everyone hung out. Everyone talked. <laughs> they met. Even Ian Bailey is seen on camera going, no, I never knew her, never knew her. And then later on, he's like, yeah, I knew her a bit. You know, we, we spoke a bit. And it changes his story so fucking often, this guy. Bailey was informed Oops. of the murder at 1.40 p.m. by the Irish Examiner reporter Eddie Cassidy, who has since cut ties with this guy. Um, He denies telling Bailey the woman was French, as he did not know this information at the stage. Several witnesses reported being told by Bailey before noon, so he wasn't told until 1.40pm about the murder, but he's telling other people at noon, or before noon, um, that uh, he was reporting on the uh, the murder of a French woman. How the fuck did he know that? Um, Suspicious much? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> I was trying to think if there was some sort of telling physical attribute yeah. where you'd be able to tell that she was French. The yeah, um, but I suddenly heard the 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 dying notes of the French national anthem, and I just assumed that a French person had been killed. Uh, yeah. How do you know it was a woman? Uh, higher pitch? Oops. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, there's that. Several witnesses report being told by Bailey that before noon that it was a French woman. Another three witnesses stated uh, they were offered crime scene photos at about 11 a.m. Oh, Before damn. he was told by his paper, 1.40 p.m., that there had been a murder and to go down and write about it. He already had pictures yeah, yeah. That's I seen a horror movie with a crime scene <laughs> photographer like that. Yeah, I th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> While under investigation, he continues to write newspaper articles. This is amazing. So he's under investigation for murder and he's still writing for the Irish Examiner, which is fucking insane. Wow. 
Um, he continues to write news articles alleging the victim had multiple male companions and steering suspicion for the murder away from West Cork towards Paris. What a dick. He actually pointed the finger <laughs> at her then husband, who he was like, oh, oh, they were they were on the outs and he knew about her affairs and this was a professional hit. And like the police were saying, look, anyone who knows anything about crime, this was not professional. <laughs> she was no. brutalized. And not in like a convincing hit fashion. There was evidence everywhere. Yeah. If we hadn't fucked it up, you know. Exactly. It's not a typical hitman no. MO to beat somebody to death with a stone. Yeah. They'd either make it look <laughs> like a hit so that like that sent a message to the family, like, get the fuck out of whatever it is you're doing. Or they'd make it look like an accident or something gone wrong. Yeah. You know, that's what hitmen do. So maybe she fell on that rock that was over yonder yeah. a whole bunch of times. Yeah, maybe that's what <laughs> that maybe works. Maybe if her face wasn't completely fucking destroyed. Oh Jesus, she fell a lot. Yeah. In the days following the murder, Bailey was noted to have multiple scratches on his forearms as well as an injury to his forehead. I told you he's a werewolf. Yeah, it's the werewolf transformation. It'll do it for you. Anyone who's seen American <laughs> Werewolf in London will tell you that shit is painful. Um, (laughs) he attributed these to and this is my favourite excuse ever to cutting down a Christmas tree on the morning of the 22nd I was getting ready for Christmas and I somehow got all of these injuries it's a Christmas tree it's not a fucking it's not Seymour from the little shop of horrors (laughs) yeah Christmas tree it's not like it's hell a rose bush I was pruning my roses yeah. would be a better that would be a much better uh, excuse. excuse yeah or like rose, my th- pine trees are soft yeah exactly investigators could not reproduce those injuries while cutting down trees so they actually went out and cut down trees <laughs> the fucking guard are amazing holy shit oh yeah well, we better go and try and recreate this let's cut down some Christmas trees what the fuck Oh. Yep, nope, he's full of... He's full of shit. Full I of didn't it. get injured once. Soul soft and fluffy. Uh, witnesses who were with him on the evening of the 22nd before the murder could not recall any injuries. How did they not charge this guy? Fuck. Yeah, that's a lot of evidence right there. We're not even getting to the half of it. Bailey and his partner, Jules Thomas, gave conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the night of the murder. In their initial statements to the Garda, they both said that Bailey had been in bed all night long. Thomas subsequently retracted that account and said Bailey had gotten out of bed about an hour after they had gone to bed at 10pm and returned at 9am. He was gone the whole night. Wow. It's also worth noting, (laughs) his partner Jules Thomas had a house that he stayed in with Initially, when he moved there, he lived in what was called the studio because she was an artist. The studio, which was actually a smaller separate house, was like 100 yards down the road. And he used that to stay in and write his articles. But then they moved in together and they became a thing. He got up in the night and said, I have to write this article. And she didn't see him until 9 a.m. the next morning. That's major suspicious right there. Um, yeah, well, he better have came back with an article, damn it. Well, yeah, no, no, no article, just, just a shitload <laughs> of new injuries. Uh, Bailey uh, himself changed his story to say that he got up at 4 a.m., wrote an article for about 30 minutes and returned to bed, even though Jules Thomas said that he didn't come back to bed until 9 a.m., so five hours after that. Plenty of time. Yeah, also, worth noting, Jules Thomas's place and the victim's place, less than half a mile apart. Oh. Yeah, down the yeah. road from each other. Um, yeah, he killed her. Yeah. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> a 14-year-old, Malachi Reed, 
said that two months after the killing, Bailey t- so Bailey picked him up in the village because he needed a ride back and he lived close to Bailey and he got in the car and all that. And it was a very quiet journey. And then Bailey started talking. Bailey said that he smashed her brains in with a rock. Though Bailey disputes this, in 1998, while drinking at home with another couple after a night out, Bailey began talking to Richie Shelley about the killing and said, I did it, I did it, I went too far. Though Bailey again disputes this. These are different people saying he's confessed to the murder. (laughs) Yeah, this fucking wow. case. Not only did the guard screw up at every opportunity to charge him, though. I know it's <laughs> it's a fucking nightmare. So, um, I mean, obviously the guard screwed up. Like every possible opportunity, um, <clears throat> tons of evidence went missing, including the gate, the giant wrought iron gate that had blood on it. It went missing. How does a fucking gate? You don't lose a gate from a property store. No, that's. You- Oops, I lost a gate. I know. Like a big-ass gate. I'm kind of seeing now why he wasn't charged. It's like, can we really trust these people? They've lost a fucking gate. Can we really charge him? Because he'll get off on, like, evidence tampering or some stupid formality like that. You start losing big items like that and, like, crucial key pieces, and you got to kind of wonder if maybe he was hanging out drinking with a friend in the Garda. (laughs) Maybe. And also, like... 28 hours for any forensic examination of the scene what the yeah. fuck that's could they yeah. not have got a helicopter in there are millions of empty fields in that part of ireland get a helicopter fly someone down you're there in two hours you know at most yeah it's fucking insane day and, day and a half asleep exactly <laughs> um the property um had bloody fingerprints on it they lost all that that went missing as well um the guard uh, the Garda's incompetence aside, I should also point out this. There was a trial held in France without Ian Bailey in absentia, and the French justice system is really kind of... I don't know if I agree with tr- holding people, putting people on trial when they're not there. That kind of... That doesn't feel like justice to me. Anyway, they did a, a really interesting thing. It was all kind of fronted by Sophie Toussaint de Plantier's son, who at this point is in his 30s and he just wants justice, he wants to know what happened. They brought everyone over except Ian Bailey. They held a a trial and they basically found him guilty of culpable homicide in France. And a a European arrest warrant is out for him. So the second he leaves Ireland, he's going over to a French prison to start a life sentence. So he has been found guilty in France. Um, And he is super litigious. Like, he's even threatening to sue the documentary people who made this thing. Um, I'm not willing to say that he's guilty of murder, but I will say that he is one of the most suspicious human beings I've ever seen, and possibly one of the biggest fucking idiots in human history. What do you think of Ian Bailey, the journalist potential murderer? Yeah. (laughs) He's something special. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm going to give him extra points because he's a werewolf. (laughs) Our first uh, werewolf idiot. Amazing. Yeah. There's no way he didn't have something to do with it. And uh, let's just say something uh, to do with it. But, like, who else? Like, there are literally no other suspects. It's the OJ situation. Like, when OJ was found not guilty, the police were like, we're closing the investigation. We've got no other suspects. You know, what else right. are we going to do? So, this guy he gets extra super creepy points too. So, yeah. Um, let's see. The the idiot parts of it is that he's wandering around telling people <laughs> that he did it. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, changing his story and wandering. Just classic, stupid. Yeah. And then dumb. trying to sue the police to clear his name and getting, because they got hold of his journals, all sorts of weird shit in his journals. Oh, so all man. this extra stuff came out. That's the other big thing is that he got past the sleeping guard dog and then he kicked it in the ass yeah. by suing it and brought it all back up. What the hell? So <clears throat> I I think that he's creepy mm. and he's weird and he's scary. Yeah. But mm. um ah, man, the guard are almost really as idiotic as this wanna... guy for screwing this up. Yeah, they get uh, uh, an 80 themselves. <laughs> <clears throat> and then I'm going to get him a 78 mm. uh, just because he's smart enough to stay in Ireland. Uh, well, I guess. I, not even I guess, Ireland. I don't know. The same village, the same house where this woman died, he is still there serving up pizzas and poems really? every fucking weekend. Dude, okay, he gets extra points for having a pizza and poem thing. I forgot about that. <laughs> he's a bad... Bad business combinations. Pizza and pasta, man. Oh, yeah. Do it. Yeah, pizza and pasta. I would go for that any day of the week. But pizza and poems? If one of the prerequisites of buying a pizza is I have to listen to your poetry, I am never (laughs) buying any food from you, sir. No. That's just... Yeah. Oh, and apparently, sorry, uh, Uh, something I didn't mention. um, In the documentary, they talk about his weird behavior. He would get because he's a big dude he's like six foot four he always wore this like and the big coat that he wore this big like kind of trench coat that he wore people saw that all over the place like uh, at the bridge when he was semi-naked a few days later and stuff this massive thing he would wear that in the pub and he'd sit in the corner of the local pub quietly and then he'd get up in the middle of this packed pub, demand that everybody shut up while he read his poetry out loud. And it was like the worst <laughs> gobbledygook bullshit poetry you could ever possibly hear. That is psychotic behavior in itself. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Extra, extra points. <laughs> I give Ian Bailey. Ian Bailey. Uh, yeah. an, an 82. Thank you. That's so cool. I just... <laughs> I, I Sometimes... When we do the show, it sometimes you're a little bit stuck. You're like, oh, who should I do? Where do I look? Where can I find? And then sometimes something falls into your lap, like an yeah. Ian Bailey or a Malachi Love Robinson or the fucking <laughs> the captain of the Costa Concordia or whatever it might be. You just find these people and you're like, how have you made it to adulthood without, yeah. you know? Ian Bailey... Yeah to me is at least according to the psychologist report he has a borderline personality disorder that seems to be the assessment of the the psychologist he is in the line of suspicion he's still in the exact same place i don't know how he got away potentially got away with this i think a lot of it has to do with the botched investigation and the fact that ireland for some reason don't want to extradite someone who isn't irish so that's really weird um, but yeah, thank you for the 82. Um, kind of an amazing week. So we've had Kaiser Wilhelm, um, one of the most notorious um, kind of, I guess they p- people see him as a villain, but one of the most complex characters in human history, certainly in recent human history. And then you've got Ian Bailey, who, if he hadn't been so fucking weird and insane and probably stupid, nobody would have ever heard of him. You know, I've heard of people, like, yeah. you hear of unsolved murders all the time. 
you know, even stuff, yep. stuff like the Zodiac killings, like there are suspects in that case. And, you know, but usually when they're unsolved, the murderers themselves are smart enough to cover their tracks. This guy was showing his tracks to the world, potentially, allegedly. Yeah, look at these pictures I took of this yeah. murdered victim. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to hear about this for another two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the hell? Wow. Amazing. He's a, he's a psychic journalist yeah isn't it incredible a french woman's been murdered how do you know she's french and a woman uh i was mm. there oh no i'll tell you that in 18 months when i'm drunk yeah jesus yeah. uh wow so there we go ian bailey the most suspicious man in history and otto von bismarck uh, no sorry not otto von bismarck uh the kaiser uh how yes. dare i bring bismarck into this he was a good guy uh he the, was right. the kaiser um, history's kind of whipping boy to a certain extent, really. Yeah. Um, so that's that's our show for this week. Thank you all so much for joining us for these fascinating studies of human uh, flaws and idiocy. And if you ever find yourself kind of maybe having an irrational need to start some sort of conflict by making a series of bad decisions or if you have actually done something terrible and you know through your own incompetence decide to tell the world multiple times maybe just stop and have a think about it although if you have done terrible things please please get help and get that sorted out um so that's our show for this week thank you all so much for joining us again if you'd like to reach out to us the uh, places you can find us are on Instagram at History's Greatest Idiots and on Twitter at Greatest Idiots. And for now, that's me saying goodbye. Derek, would you like to say goodbye? It's been fun, everybody. We'll see you next time. We'll see you soon. And uh, everybody, take care. See you soon now. Bye. <laughs>